your scriptures and open to the book of John. It's in the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel, fourth book in chapter 20. We'll be looking at the first eight verses uh, in the blue pew Bible in front of you. Please open to page 1685. You'll find it there. Every one of the Gospels, each of the four Gospels, has an empty tomb account. This is John's. Uh, I encourage you, uh, even today, to read all four of them, as is in your the small group notes, and, and compare each one. I think you'll find a fuller picture by doing that. This is John's description of the empty tomb. This is a first-hand description. In verse 1, John writes, early on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday for the Jews, first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, whom had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. This is the aha moment for Peter and John. Have you ever had one of those aha moments where you get it? It just comes into focus. This is when the penny drops, when they find the tomb empty and the strips of linen in the tomb, and they, John and Peter, they get a tingle on the back of their neck because they realize, they understand, they saw, and they believe. This ending makes sense of everything that's gone before. That's why they have this aha moment. That's why they have this tingle. But this ending makes absolutely no sense if you've just been dropped in and don't know what comes before. You, you don't get the tingle. You don't, the penny doesn't drop. You don't, you don't have the aha because you don't understand what has gone before. There's a lot of movies like this that if you haven't watched the whole movie, the end of the movie doesn't make sense. And by the way, this is spoiler alert. If you don't want to know, just, I don't know, don't leave, but plug up your, no, your ears. You know this movie, Planet of the Apes, the original with Charlton Heston. At the end of the movie, he's riding down a beach with, on a horse, and, and you're seeing him riding towards you, and all of a sudden he sees something that you don't see, and he gets off the horse, and he falls to his knees, and he begins pounding the sand, and he, he's yelling, you maniacs, you maniacs, you finally did it, you maniacs. And then the camera pulls away, and you see a half-buried Statue of Liberty. 
And the whole movie makes sense. He's been on earth the whole time. The penny drops. The tingle is there. I mean, there's many movies like this, aren't there? I mean, think of, uh, think of the usual suspects. If you know that ending, the very end of that movie, here this, this man that's been crippled the whole movie is walking down the sidewalk at the end and, and his strides that were crippled suddenly become strong and, and confident. And he stands, he lights a cigarette and gets in a car and drives away. And you have that aha moment. Oh my goodness, verbal is Kaiser Sozane. Or perhaps the most famous in cinematic history is the end of Citizen Kane when you, when you have a, a sled, an old sled with, with the name Rosebud on it cast into the flame and starts burning up and the whole movie makes sense. But perhaps one of the best is The Sixth Sense. Have you seen this movie? Because this is one of the best examples, because not only do we get the aha moment, but so does the main character in the movie at the same time. Here this man, this husband, comes walking into to his, his uh, living room, and there is his wife dozing by the fire, and he sits down, looking at her, smiling, and all of a sudden in her dozing, her hand flops down, and out of her hand comes a wedding ring that, that rolls along the floor and then circles to a stop. And he gets it. And so do we. He's been dead the whole time. And that tingle goes up your neck. And you go, ah. That's what's happening to John and Peter when they look into the tomb. They get the tingle. They understand everything that has gone before. Because the last 1% of Jesus' story, makes sense of the whole 99 that went before. If you're reading this and you don't get a tingle up your spine, if you don't go, ah, of course, maybe you don't understand what went before. Maybe you don't know the rest of the story. So I want to rewind with you and tell the simple story. And it all starts with God. God is the, what the Bible is all about. The whole Bible is about God. It's about God and his relationship with mankind. And the best one-word description for God in the whole Bible, the one word that kind of encapsulates who God is, everything about him, is holy. God is holy. John, Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, he wrote this about God's holiness. A true love of God must begin with a delight in his holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute, for no other attribute is truly lovely without this one. The holiness of God. That's the one word description that is used more and more, most often in the Bible to describe God, holy. R.C. Sproul, when commenting on Isaiah 6, where if you remember Isaiah 6, it's a picture of the throne room and you have God in his, in his robe filling and it's filled with smoke and there's these, these uh, 
uh, cherubim and seraphim that are flying around him, and they're saying one word over and over again, holy, 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 holy. And R.C. Sproul says this. He says, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, 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 justice, justice, justice. It does, it does say that he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. And that means that he is perfect in every way. He's perfect in every way. He's perfect in his motivations. He's perfectly good in all that he does. And out of this perfection, out of this perfect perfection, this purity, this goodness, God created everything. He created everything. He created all the animals, created all the plants, the sea, what's in them, the grass, everything living, everything inert. He created everything. And after everything he created, he said, that is good. That is good. Because he's holy. That is good. And at the center of all of this, holy God Almighty created the very pinnacle of his creation. You and me. And when he created us, it says in scripture in the first chapter of Genesis, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you know what God said after he created us? That's very good. It's not just good. That's very good. God created us in his own image. And we were created good perfect and perfectly righteous. We had everything we could ever want at that time. We had perfect purpose in work. You know how work is sometimes, well, work? It wasn't then. It was, you were perfectly fulfilled, never drudgery. We had perfect relationships with each other. Perfect relationships. No envies, no bitternesses, no angers, no resentments. Perfect relationships. And best of all, we had a perfect relationship with God. That's described in in Scripture as we walked with God. We had a perfect relationship with God. He was our utterly perfect Father. Perfect in how He loved us. Perfect in how He cared for us. Perfect in how He provided for us. Perfect in how He guided us and counseled us in everything. And it was reciprocal. We delighted to call him Father. We delighted to live under his loving authority. We loved the direction he gave us, the care he he gave us, the hugs he gave us. Yes, hugs. So what happened? Why isn't it like that now? If that's how it was created, why isn't it like that now? That's the second part of our story. And we call that man. Now, God didn't create human robots. He didn't create us and say, you must love me. 
He gave us free will. Why did he do that? Because love that is not freely given is not true love. You must have a choice for it to be sincere. That's what makes relationships so special. That's what makes the marriage relationship so special. It's I choose you. I choose to love you. It's not forced. But the tragic part of our story is that with our free will, we chose to turn away from God. You see, God created a love choice in the Garden of Eden. He created a choice for us. And that choice was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you can have anything else. We'll have perfection here. Just just don't eat of that tree. Everything else you can have. That was his way of saying, choose me. And he even warned us, do not eat or you shall surely die. He was in essence saying to us, if you love me, choose me. If you love me, choose to obey me. If you love me, choose to live under my good and perfect and loving authority. In other words, if you love me, show me. Isn't that what what every love needs to do? You can't just say I love you. I mean, that's easy, right? I can say I love each and every one of you. I can say, if I don't know your name, I can say I love you. It doesn't mean anything unless I show that love. Some young kids were asked what love is. And Noel, age seven, not Noel Hansen, but Noel, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. Carl, age five, was asked what love is, and he said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) But Rebecca, I think, gets it when she answered, when my grandmother got arthritis and she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, My grandfather began doing it for her all the time, even when he got arthritis. Love shows. Love acts. Love does. Love chooses other over self. And that's what we didn't do. Eve went to the tree and ate and gave some to Adam, and he ate, the Bible tells us, And by doing so, Adam and Eve chose self, chose their own way, chose themselves over God. They sinned. And because they did this, we are all guilty of the same thing. Now, before you go, hold on. They did it, not me. Why am I guilty? Why am I paying for something that they did? Well, I want to tell you that you would have done the same thing 
hey, how can you say that, Blake? You're not me. Well, I put a little box in the back of the sanctuary today. Everybody's kind of smiling and laughing because you noticed it. And you noticed on the box, it said what? Don't peek. Don't lift it up. Don't look underneath. I'd like to ask if anybody looked underneath. We have a couple of heads nodding. We have other heads that refused to nod that did look underneath. And those of you who are going, I didn't look underneath. You were thinking about it. You see, if you're told not to do something, that becomes what you want to do. It becomes the forbidden fruit. It becomes instantly desirous. Don't do that. Well, I didn't want to do that before, but now I kind of do. If you're told not to look in the closet, as my mother used to around Christmas time, I used to go out of my way to go near that closet. If you're told... Not to take a cookie in the cookie jar. Don't open the cookie jar. Don't open the jar. What do you want to do? You want to open the cookie jar. Consider this. One of the objections to the Christian faith, one of the big objections to the Christian faith is it's, it's restrictive. It's going to tell me, don't do those things. Don't do what I want to do. You can't do everything that you want to do. You can't look in every closet. You can't open every cookie jar. You can't peek under every box. Basic truth is that each one of us opens the jar, looks in the closet, and peeks under the box. We eat the forbidden fruit. We choose to go our own way. We choose my way and not anybody else's. That's what Isaiah was basically getting at in the 55th chapter, 53rd chapter of his book when he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. I'm going to look under that box. I'm going to get that cookie. Who are you to tell me I can't go into that closet? That's the tragic decision each person makes. My way, not God's way. My choice, not God's choice. I'm the authority of my life, not God. And that's what the Bible calls sin. That's the tragic decision that Adam and Eve made and that we continue to make. They chose their own way. They sinned. And that tragic choice caused two results. The first result is now we, humanity, and each person here We have a broken relationship with God. Because God is perfectly holy, he cannot have anything that is not perfect in his presence. So now we have relational distance from God. If you notice the picture up there, Gustav Dory, one of my favorite artists, this is his rendition of Adam and Eve leaving the garden. And we go, gosh, why did he do such a terrible thing? By casting us out of the garden, do you realize that God was protecting us by putting relational distance between he and I? He and us and he. We, secondly, we, humanity and each person in this room, now bear the consequences of the sin. 
Part of God's holiness is his justice. There must be consequence for disobedience. I mean, everybody basically knows that. That's part of what Paul is saying is the law is written on our hearts. We basically know that when you do something wrong, there has to be a consequence. Parents, you know this. When your children does some, child does something you told them not to do, there has to be a consequence. There has to be punishment. And it's no different with God. God can't just excuse our sin. He's perfectly just. He must punish sin. And in Romans six twenty three, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the wages of sin, how we get paid when we sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. You might be sitting here and saying, well, I don't feel the broken relationship. What do you mean I have a broken relationship? I don't, feel, I don't understand. I, don't, I feel like I have a relationship with God. Or I don't feel God's judgment, wages of sin. I don't get what you're saying, Blake. Well, just because you don't feel something doesn't mean that it isn't true. Pastor Dan Meyer is helpful when he wrote about a trip he took to Ecuador. And he says, years ago I traveled to Ecuador and spent a couple of weeks traveling in the mountains. The Quechua Indian people I met there lived amidst the most mind-numbing squalor I'd ever seen. The disease and disfigured bodies were heartbreaking. The bugs and stench were everywhere. People were living in holes in the ground and calling it a house. They were feeding on rotten food and prizing garbage as their possessions. But they didn't know it. They didn't realize it. Why? Because everyone lived that way. They'd never been given a picture of what it means to be genuinely healthy human being. They did not know what an abundant life even looks like. And I think there's a theological and spiritual truth there with us. That's our problem too. We don't know how sick and undeveloped spiritually we are because we've always lived that way. We don't realize the brokenness of our relationship with God because we've never had a whole and perfect one. We don't realize the spiritual disease that we have because that's how we've always lived. It's the reason we think of ourselves as largely innocent and good. We don't realize the dire consequences of living the lives in that manner, of choosing self over God of choosing sin because we've never been told that it's sin. And that's what this part of the story tells us, that we are in a dire circumstance that we can't get ourselves out of. We cannot do enough good to please God. The Bible says that Even the good things we do are tainted. Both the prophet Isaiah and Paul put it like this. Your righteousnesses, the good things that you are doing, are like filthy rags to God. 
We cannot live a moral enough life to earn God's approval. God's word also says through the Apostle James, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of it all. Well, Blake, I, I, I uphold most of what God tells me to do. Did you slip once? You're guilty of it all. You see, heaven is an all or nothing proposition. When Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That wasn't an ideal. He was saying, you want to be in relationship with God? Live a perfect life. We have to be perfect in every way, morally, ethically, experientially, volitionally, thoughtfully, in order to make it to heaven. And that puts us in an impossible position, doesn't it? If you're even remotely introspective, you realize that you're not perfect. That puts us between a rock and a hard place of our own making, by the way. The rock is the sins that we can't stop doing. The hard place is God's judgment and punishment of sin. How do we get out of that? Where's the relief? And that's the third part of the story. Christ. God could have left us spiritually like the Quechua Indians, living in our disfigurement and not knowing the squalor we live in spiritually. He could have left us between the rock and the hard place. He could have left us there. But he didn't. He looked down at us. He looked down at those who, as mankind does, thumb our nose at him and say, there is no God. Don't tell me what to do. Get out of my life. Get out of my country. He looked down at people like that and his heart broke. Instead of hardening his heart, he did the most amazing thing. God came to us. He didn't say, Listen, Diane, you better do better. He didn't look down and say, listen, Abe, just do more good than you do bad. He didn't even say, you better clean up your life if you want to make it to me. No, he came to us. And that's the story of Jesus Christ. God came to offer you and me a way out from between this rock and this hard place that we're in. You see, God left paradise and was born in a filthy stable. That's what we call Christmas. That's what we celebrate. God incarnating, becoming human. Charles Wesley, one of my favorite hymns, And Can It Be, describes it this way. He left his father's throne above, So free, so infinite his grace, 
emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Emptied himself of all but love. And then he relieved both the rock and the hard place. He relieved the rock by accomplishing something that we have no hope of ever accomplishing, people. He lived a perfect and obedient life to God. He did not sin in word, thought, or deed for 33 years. He didn't think a dirty thought. He didn't say a hurtful word. He didn't act in a fashion that broke any of his own laws that he created. He was perfectly righteous and he earned heaven. And that's part of what he offers to you when you say, I trust in Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, that's part of what he gives you. He gives you his perfect record. Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You can be perfect in God's eyes by trusting in what Jesus did. That's the rock. And then he, re- he relieved the hard place. The hard place, allowing himself to be accused of something he didn't do. If you went to the Good, Good Friday service, and I encourage you to go to that service because it's a reminder of what he allowed himself to endure. He allowed himself to be called cursed, guilty. Innocent, yet condemned to die. And above everything else, he didn't even run away after that. He could have, but allowed himself to be proclaimed guilty and allowed himself to be executed on that cross. Why? If you believe, if you trust in Jesus, this is how the hard place is taken away. He took your penalty. He took your judgment. He took your death. He took your place. He said, punish me, not them. And he did. Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. They thrust a spear into his side to make sure he was dead and his body didn't react. They took him down and put him in a borrowed tomb. They sealed it up to make sure. And then on Sunday, two men ran to the tomb, Peter and John. And the tomb was empty. No body. Only strips of linen. No Jesus. And they saw and they believed. The penny dropped. The tingle went up their back. They got it. He was raised from the dead. 
And what the resurrection means is that everything Jesus did and said is true. That's why the resurrection is so important. God did come in that stable. He did live a perfect life. He did die in our place. And anyone who trusts in what Jesus did and does not trust in themselves will be saved. Jesus, when he went to the empty tomb of Lazarus and Mary and Martha came out, he looked at them and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he ended it by saying this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question that Jesus asks. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I thank you for applying it to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.